May the Lord answer the prayer we have just sung together through the song we have learned uh, earlier. More than 900 years ago, particularly in year 1095, on November 2nd, which would be just a few days from now, the Turks invaded the city of Jerusalem and took control of the main Christian church in the old downtown of Jerusalem, the Holy Sepulchre, forbidding Jewish worshipers and Christian pilgrims to enter it. Uh, the emperor of the region asked the West for help, and Pope Urban II drafted a plan to rescue the city of Jerusalem and the Holy Sepulchre. The plan of the Pope was to pitch this as a call to defend Christendom. So he urged Christians from all over Europe to travel to Israel and take over the Holy Church by force, rescuing it from the Turks and bringing it again under Christian dominance. Now, in order to motivate men throughout the continent of Europe to enlist in this fight, the Pope traveled in various parts of Europe giving this clear promise, quote, those who defended Christendom would, would be embarking on a pilgrimage, all their sins would be washed away, and their souls would reap untold rewards in the next life. As a result, more than 60,000 men from across Europe were stirred up by hopes of personal salvation, religious fervor, pilgrimage, and adventure and desire for rewards. On August 15th, 1096, in, on August 15th, in year 1096, tens of thousands of warriors started their journey towards the Holy Land to free it from Turkish invasion. And thus, the first crusade was under its way. Now, it's not, it's not wrong to help a nation that has been invaded. However, Motivating people to use a sword in exchange for forgiveness of sins and in exchange of the promise of eternal life is a tragic distortion of what the kingdom of God is about. Wanting to advance a kingdom of God by any means is a wrong way to advance the kingdom. It might be tempting for us to overlook some wickedness when it seems to advance the cause of the kingdom. But as we will see in the passage this morning, wicked ways are not the way to build up the kingdom that God promised. And today's passage highlights this truth in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 4. We'll be reading from verse 1 to the end of the chapter, 
verse 12. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open God's Word to, first, to 2 Samuel. We'll be reading from chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 12. Here is God's Word for us this morning. 2 Samuel 4, 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Getaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimon, the Beerothite, Rechab and Banah, set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banah, his brother escaped when they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him they took his head and went by the way of the arabah all night and brought the head of ishbosheth to david at hebron and they said to the king here is the head of ishbosheth the son of saul your enemy who sought your life the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Banah, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Beerothite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Amen. This is God's word for us. And you may wonder, what will I preach from this passage? Well, pray for me. And let me pray for you as you hear this word. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, you are a just king. And with you, there's no wickedness. Father, as we have heard this word read, I ask that you would help me preach it and help us to hear it so that our hearts may be knit together to your King, 
the King you promised, King Jesus, that we would be drawn to your kingdom even when we see signs of wickedness caused in your name. Father, help us to discern evil from righteousness and help our hearts to be knit together with you for the sake of righteousness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This short chapter in, in the book of 2 Samuel is the third story in a string of stories that describe David's reign at Hebron. He's still reigning only, only over one part or minority part of the people of God. He's waiting and trusting in God to cause him to reign over all 12 tribes of Israel. And this chapter is still part of that time of waiting. How would God cause the rest of the nation to come under the reign of David as God had promised David uh, to reign over all his people? In the previous chapter, the narrator has told us the, that David's house was growing stronger while Saul's dynasty and house was growing weaker. The temptation for any leader in such a season of growing success is to focus on the growth and on the success and become superficial in the methods of getting there. As long as the house of David is getting stronger, as long as the house of Saul is getting weaker, it would be tempting for someone like David to just look forward enjoy the success, look forward for the, for the fullness of it, and not care much about the ways of, increase, of, of experiencing that success. But the lesson we learn about God's king in this chapter is that he will not accept advancement of the kingdom through wicked ways. He will not accept advancement of the kingdom through wicked ways. Nor does he ignore such wicked actions, but rather he exposes them as wicked and punishes them justly. And the lesson this chapter teaches us is simple. We cannot advance God's kingdom by wickedness. We cannot advance God's kingdom by wickedness. Uh, this chapter starts by telling us that the eyes of all Israel were dismayed at the news of Abner's death. Uh, could people in the north, in the northern part of the kingdom of Israel, be tempted to conclude that this might have been David's hand to eliminate his competition in the north? Perhaps. Perhaps a distant observer could wonder suspiciously about David and walk away with a wrong picture of the kind of rain that God was establishing through David. How many today still live with a wrong impression about Christianity because they, some of them have witnessed or experienced hurtful things done to them by Christians in the name of God? If you have ever experienced such hurt, I'm deeply sorry to, to hear about that. If you're open to 
to talk about it or to process that hurt with someone, I would love to talk with you at the end of the service or sometime throughout the week. There are, sadly, there are situations that cannot be undone. Hurt that has been caused already cannot be undone. And sadly, some fall for the, for the wicked ways and, and doing it either in the name of God or on behalf of God, and thus giving Christianity a very, a very poor image. Our chapter shows the wickedness of two leaders, two brothers, who thought they are advancing David's reign, but they were on the wrong side of the kingdom. So in this chapter, we see wickedness and the kingdom. And there are two parts to this chapter. In the first part, it exposes, it it presents to us the the wickedness of these two brothers. And and I call it wickedness camouflaged. Wickedness camouflaged. And then in the second half, we see David's response to their wicked ways. And we see wickedness judged. Wickedness camouflaged and wickedness judged, because this chapter is seeking to show us that we cannot advance God's kingdom by wickedness. But let's see how wickedness is camouflaged in the first part of this chapter, in verses 1 through 8. The murder uh, these two leaders committed is clear. They use their position of authority, of being leaders, of raiding bands in Saul's army, to eliminate the king of the northern tribes of Israel. But before the author tells us about their crime, he tells us about their origins. They were not part of David's army. They were not part of David's tribe. They were actually Benjamites. Why would that matter? Because Benjamin was Saul's tribe. They were Benjamites. Now, what would motivate these men of Benjamin to act against their own king? against a dynasty that grew out of their own tribe? The answer is we don't know. There's some speculation. There's some potential explanation. Uh, Perhaps the the fact that they were uh, Beerothites is a clue that when Saul killed the Gibeonites earlier in his reign, the region of the Beerothites was very close to the Gibeonites. And it's possible that b- these Beerothites uh, were affected by Saul's attack against the region, against the Gibeonites. We'll learn more about that later in chapter 21 of this book. Perhaps these men have had some grudges against Saul because of the way they, he handled the Gibeonites. But it's unclear. We, we just don't know. What's surprising is that these men of Benjamin... Uh, come against uh, the king that was part of, of Saul's dynasty, Saul's own son. Perhaps this is an evidence how Saul's house was getting weaker and weaker. And David could have just sort of go on with the wave and enjoy the weakening of Saul's house. But, but the author, before we are told how David responds to this news, the author tells us, how these men, how these two brothers killed the king. Their crime is repeated twice. 
Uh, we're surprised on the first read of it. Why? It's as if the narrator is, is going back to what was just spoken and repeating the story of their crime again. But it's repeated a second time because the second time there's more details added. They killed the, the king when he was most vulnerable and unprotected during his afternoon nap while he was resting in bed. Uh, they were not only killed, they were not only killed him, but also cut off his head in order to bring it to David. And they traveled through the, through the land of the Arabah, through the night, in order to get to David. Uh, last week I started reading through the book of Deuteronomy in my own quiet time, and I was struck by the geographical uh, note at the very beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. The people of God were waiting on the other side of Jordan, about to enter to the promised land. And the place where they were resting and waiting to get into the promised land is the, is the land of the Arabah. It's as if these two brothers are crossing through the land just as the Israelites were waiting through the Arabah to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. These two brothers are are having the king's head in their sack, in a, in a bag, in something, to take it to David, thinking they're bringing good news to David now that the rival king is dead and he can finally reign over his people. But what is most surprising about their crime is not only that they, they cut off the king's head and, and cross through this, uh, this field of the Arabah through the night, What's most surprising about their crime is the explanation they have for it. And this is what the author wants us to see. They use the Bible to explain away their crime. Look at verse 8. And they said to the king, to David, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. And what these men say to David reveals how they were wrong in, in how they were thinking and what they did. These men framed David's relationship to Saul as a relationship of enemy. Notice how they describe Saul as David's enemy. And this is simply not true. Now, it, is, it was true that Saul considered David an enemy. And it was true that Saul sought David's life. But it was not true that David considered Saul to be his enemy. These men wrongly concluded that in light of what Saul had done to David, David must have considered Saul his enemy. But that was not true. And this is what God's power can do in our own hearts. To look to the people who have caused us hurts and not consider them enemies. Do you have people in your life that you might be tempted to categorize as enemies? Perhaps because of the hurts they have caused you. When we see others as enemies we will be more quickly inclined to act wickedly ourselves. 
either in our own hearts or in our words or in our actions towards them. I want to encourage any of us this morning not to harbor any hurts or unforgiveness in our hearts. Talk to a mature Christian about any relational conflict. Or come and talk to any of the pastors here. Friends, this is an area that I have needed help for my own heart. And I have often gone to my elders here and opened up my own heart to them about certain hurts so that I would not harbor unforgiveness or any bitterness. Because it's very easy when others hurt us uh, to frame the relationship in terms of, of enemies or in terms of, of just conflict that grows bitter and resentful. These two men have miscalculated how David viewed Saul, and it led them to act wickedly. David did not see Saul as his enemy, as we will see for the remaining of this chapter. And this allowed David not to fall for the wicked act that these men brought before him. These men also frame their actions as God's vengeance. Not only do they frame David's relationship to Saul as an enemy relationship, they frame their own actions as God's vengeance. And this is the wickedness of these men. Not only do they commit the crime, but they frame it as God's act of taking vengeance. And this is how they justify their actions. Friends, we need to be cautious of not putting spiritual language or spiritual explanations to cover up for our sinful actions. What is worse is that these men likely thought that they are acting on God's behalf. Oh, how easy it is for us to project God's vengeance through our actions. How easy it is for us to think that what we want to do is what God wants to do. We don't know if these men were sincere in their rationale or if they deliberately came up with this as a clever excuse. If these men were sincerely thinking that they were carrying out God's vengeance, they were deeply wrong, even though they were sincere. Uh, our sincerity does not make a wrong action right. And if they were trying to smooth-talk David into accepting their crime as a gift from God, David saw right through it and refused to accept their framing as God's vengeance. These men also frame their relationship to David as my Lord the King. With their lips, they stated allegiance to David. But that was no guarantee that they were on the right path. Actually, they were not. Their actions showed that they were merely using the Bible to cover up their, their wicked ways. What a, what a warning for us as well. Some people can actually use the name of God to cover up and explain their wickedness. Uh, some people may be using the Bible as a bat to hurt others. 
Some people may be using the Bible by taking things out of context and applying them in wrong ways to explain why they act wickedly. And this is actually called spiritual abuse. Friends, the particular sinful ways we can be tempted to pursue in in the name of advancing the kingdom of God will be different from person to person. Each of us can fall in the trap of wanting to act on behalf of the kingdom, but actually in reality we're pursuing our own sinful methods or disgraceful means. It should not surprise us that sin wants to cover itself up with biblical language. This text is a great reminder that we can use the Bible to cover up for our sinful ways. So ask yourself, what are some ways you might be tempted to advance God's kingdom by disgraceful or unworthy means? Perhaps it's by speaking ill of our neighbor and falling into gossip. Perhaps it's by misusing funds. Perhaps it's by speaking untruth. Perhaps it's by not being transparent and instead live a double life. Friends, ask yourself, do you care more about success, even in God's kingdom, than about acting righteously? Or do you tend to fall in the trap of thinking that the end justifies the means? This text shows us the deception of taking such a path. Let me bring up an area that is often unaddressed, abuse. It can be caused by Christians acting against other Christians. Abuse happening in the home, acting violently in physical ways, hurting others. But there's other forms of abuse, not just physical There's forms of sexual abuse, or emotional abuse, or mental abuse, or even spiritual abuse. We do not want to be naive at the reality that there are people, even members in churches, who act abusively and wickedly towards family members, spouses, or other members. And it can be done even in the name of biblical principles. When a family member tries to control another person by force, manipulation, or other sinful ways, that that person is taking the path of wickedness. Let me speak here a word to anyone who has been the target of abuse. We, We want you to come and speak to the pastors of the church. Or speak to mature Christian leaders or members of the church to help you process abuse. Sadly, there are people who are claiming to be in the kingdom. There are people who may be even claiming to do it in the name of biblical principles and yet act abusively, hurtfully towards others. We should not be surprised when it happens. And I don't say that as a means of excusing those who abuse. I say that simply so that we may not be naive about the reality that it can happen. 
We should be vigilant over it, and we should be discerning about it. And when it happens, we should not ignore it, and we should not just quietly do nothing about it. When it does happen, we should not lack the courage to expose it for what it is. Wickedness can be camouflaged as as a means of just living in the kingdom, acting on behalf of the king, acting in ways that seem to advance the principles of the king. These two brothers did that, and David saw through it, and he picked up on the fact that this is not an advancement of the kingdom. This is wickedness camouflaged. Some act wickedly in the name of the kingdom and claiming God's name. The second half of the chapter shows us that wickedness must be judged, and wickedness is judged. We see this in verses 9 through 12. David shows his deep disdain towards these two brothers and what they have done. He does not accept how these men have camouflaged their wickedness. His answer shows how he resisted them. First, David credits God for his past protection. Look at verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Banach, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Burethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Let me pause there. Notice how David describes God. David recounts past times of adversity and how it was the Lord who rescued him out of every difficulty. David does not credit men or himself for the past deliverances. And this is a recipe for resisting wickedness, a heart that keeps trusting in God's ability to intervene and act. We don't have to take vengeance in our own hands. We don't have to act in vengeance on behalf of God. We don't bear the burden of creating our own destiny. We look to a God who is with us, in every adversity, and we can trust Him for deliverances. Can you look back at your life, at your adversities, and see how God has been with you, rescuing you through your adversities? Remembering God's past deliverances is a great way to help you resist falling for wicked paths today. Friends, it's, it's a way of saying, it's as if David says, I won't fall for wicked ways because God has been faithful with me in every adversity. Can you say that? Can you look at God's way with you in your past and see how God has been with you? Not that God helped you avoid the adversity, but that how God helped you through those adversities. David quickly frames God's presence, and his, he trusts the Lord for how God has been with him in the past. But David also frames these two men and describes them as wicked men. Look at verse 11. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed? Shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Why are these men wicked? And why is Ishbosheth righteous? After all, it was Ishbosheth 
who accepted the throne of his father instead of submitting to David's reign. Calling Ishbosheth a righteous man here does not mean that Ishbosheth uh, was with no guilt in setting up this alternate kingdom, being designated as a righteous man here speaks particularly of the fact that these men have killed another human being who committed nothing worthy of being killed for. God had not sent them to kill Ishbosheth as a divine punishment. They decided to kill the king, and they decided to frame it as a divine punishment. But that was not God's doing. David is the king who stands up against evil, even when those evil ways were portrayed as beneficial for his reign. And David will have no part of such evil and wicked ways, even if those ways could have been personally advantageous to him. Friends, here we see David courageous to distance himself from these men, even if it was personally, potentially advantageous to him. As Christians, we must denounce wickedness even when it is done in the name of advancing the cause of God's kingdom. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul said, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. David here has the courage to distance himself from these wicked men. And he does a step further. Not only does he distance himself, but he actually punishes such tactics and he punishes these two men. David orders their death for murdering another human being who, was, who had not committed any, any crime worthy of death. And this was God's law. Evil had to be punished. And this is what David did in this chapter. He compares their act with the response he gave to the Amalekite back in chapter 1 of this book the Amalekite who had brought the news of Saul's death. If an Amalekite who claimed to have assisted Saul in his death received a death penalty, how much more do these two brothers who willfully devised this crime to kill the king, not on a battlefield, but in his own bedroom? The verdict for these men is similar and on even greater grounds. They must be punished for their crime. It does not matter that these two men called David my Lord. Their wickedness could not be covered up or explained away as God's vengeance. It was wickedness. And this is a warning for us. It does not matter what our perspective is on our actions. What matters is God's perspective on our actions. In this case, David's words represent God's perspective. Their deeds were not God's vengeance, but their wicked agenda and plans, and it was worthy of immediate death. What a shock it must have been to them to hear this verdict, thinking that they have acted to advance the kingdom and in reality deserving the death sentence, and rightly so. 
Friends, in the kingdom of God, the judgment is based not on our assessment of our actions, but on the assessment of the king. Do you trust your own assessment of yourself? Or are you happy to let him be the judge of you? What we learn from this, from this encounter of these two men, these two brothers, who have misjudged their own actions, is to consider not to be the judge of our own selves and our own actions. The king of the kingdom, who represents God's justice, he has the right to determine what is right and wrong. And these men received not only their death sentence for their crime, but they received a very shameful death. Verse 12 ends on, on some interesting details. David commanded his young men, and they killed the two brothers. They cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. What grotesque details. This is a way of, of saying, David is saying to his people, to the people of Hebron, to everybody in his kingdom, what these men have done is not only worthy of death, but worthy of a shameful death. These details are the same ones that the Philistines have used against Saul when after killing Saul, they cut off his head, cut off his limbs, and hanged him. David does the same, but now he does it to these two mercenaries. By shaming them publicly in this way, David is communicating a clear message. There is no room for acting wickedly in the name of God's kingdom. There's no room for that. Does it happen? Yes, it does. But David's instinct here is foreshadowing the coming of the king of kings who would come from David's line, who will execute justice and righteousness. As, as the prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Oh, friends, if you are tempted to give into wicked ways while still claiming the lordship of Christ over your life, consider this warning. It does not matter what you claim with your lips. If your life is pursuing wicked ways, it's the assessment of the king that will count in the last day. And I hope and pray that you will not be surprised, as these two brothers were surprised, to hear a verdict opposite of what you expect. From another perspective, if you are on the receiving side of sin and wickedness when others act wickedly against you, Take comfort in knowing that our King Jesus is a King who will make all wrong things right. Trust Him. In contrast with the shameful death that King David ordered for these two wicked brothers, notice the, the order that David gives regarding Ishbosheth in verse 12. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. 
Why would the narrator tell us these details about Ishbosheth's burial, about his head being buried the way David ordered it? Because they communicate the gracious treatment David gave Ishbosheth. There's no shaming or no sense of vengeance in David's heart towards Ishbosheth even though he was the puppet king set up by Abner two years earlier. Instead, David showed honor to Ishbosheth by burying him in the same place with Abner at Hebron, the same place where the patriarchs were buried. Now, there is something powerful here in David acting in this way. On one side, he acts justly, to bring justice to these two wicked brothers. And on the other side, he acts graciously towards Ishbosheth. Even though Abner was the man who installed Ishbosheth as king in the northern kingdom, we saw in the previous chapter how Abner has changed his loyalty and, and joined David. And David treated Abner with, with grace and graciousness. Now David wants these two men to be together even in their tomb. David wants these two men who used to be his rivals for a season to be buried in the same place where the patriarchs were. Old wounds must not remain open forever. Now, we don't know if Ishbosheth ever came to repent of his rivalry towards David. But it is clear that David's heart was freed from holding grudges or, or holding an unforgiving spirit towards Ishbosheth. And David chose to honor Ishbosheth even though Ishbosheth's actions did not deserve it. Perhaps David acted in this gracious way towards Saul's house to show that Saul was not his enemy to show that Saul's sons were not his enemy, to show that, that he was actually committed to the covenant he had made with Jonathan. Friends, are there people you need to act graciously towards, even though they have not acted graciously towards you? We see here a king who acts righteously and justly. We see in this chapter that ungodly methods will never secure God's kingdom. Wicked ways will never advance God's reign among us or in our lives. So, dear friends, commit today to renounce any ungodly or wicked ways that lure your mind, your heart, your speech, your sight, or your actions. In this chapter, we see that David's reign is established not by wickedness, but by trust in the Lord's protection and by justice exposing it and judging wickedness, even shaming it publicly for all to see that David's reign is not built on the wickedness of men, no matter what the excuses are. Friends, David in this chapter shows us a picture of the king that will come from his line, a king who will have the wisdom to see through camouflage, a king who will have the eyes, who will see through all pretenses. That's why in, in the book of Revelation, the very first image of the exalted Jesus 
His eyes are, are described as flaming fire. Eyes who can see through. Eyes who cannot be uh, taken as naive or be able to be gullible. The king of kings is able to see through any camouflaged wickedness. On one side, that should terrify us. On the other side, it should embolden us to stay away from wicked ways. We cannot fool King Jesus. David, in other parts of his life, has not been so consistent as this book will show us in other parts. But here in this chapter, he is to show us this is what the king of kings, this is what the kingdom that God is establishing, this is the reign of the kingdom of God. You cannot fool the king of kings. He will see through every camouflaged wickedness. So if that describes you this morning, I want to encourage you, I want to plead with you today. Come to him. Confess your sins. He will receive you. He will deal with you graciously because he's a merciful king as well. But those who pretend to continue to live their lives in wickedness while claiming the name of God over them, they will not go far. The king of kings has come. David here shows us that we cannot advance God's kingdom by wickedness. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that shows us the way your kingdom, the way your reign advances. Father, help us to have eyes to see through pretense advantages. Help us, Father, to forsake them. Help us to distance ourselves from them. Help us to act justly and rightly. We pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and our King. Amen.